I will admit, as I have admitted before, that I am a fan of Jane Austen. I'm a sucker for it. I love the fact that at the end of Jane Austen novels, I know what's going to happen. I know they're going to get married in the end, and I smile, and I'm glad that they get married in the end. I have a soft spot in my heart for romanticism. Uh, Judges is not a Jane Austen novel. It fits more in the genre of tragedy. It grabs us by the neck. I think I said this in the very first sermon about Judges. It grabs us by the neck and says, don't turn away. You've got to look at the anguish. You've got to look at the pain. You've got to look at the, the torturous nature of the world that is around us. And so this book ends up calling us to weep with those who weep, to join with the daughters of Israel or with the companions of Jephthah's daughter and to travel over the hills and mourn and lament. Because as hard as it may be, it's, it's hard to read it. I'm sure it's hard to hear it as well. It's hard to read it. There is something here that we can learn that can confront us, which simply, it simply cannot be communicated to us. It simply cannot be heard within what we might call the escapism of romanticism. There's tragedy that is woven into this world. The human condition hurts like hell. And tragedy allows us to have our souls enabled to join with others who are experiencing that. Tragedy allows us to take, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but the, you know, the Edvard Munch painting, the scream, the, the, the figure who is clasping his head and screaming as he's on a pier in loneliness and trying to figure it out. Tragedy allows us to enter into that experience. And then it, it forces us to ask this question then, okay, how do I live in a world like that? How do I live in a world where things like this happen? How do I live in the world bearing the cross of Jesus and knowing from other places in Scripture, places that we love in Scripture, that we have a call within this world to rejoice, to be joyful, to be hopeful. How, how do I do that? The protagonist of our tragedy this morning is, of course, Jephthah. And he is to be sure, and this is where we'll start, I'll make a couple of points about Jephthah. He is to be sure an unlikely hero. And I call him a hero, fully appreciating the incongruity of that word when used in light of the story that is before us. But I call him that, a hero, because as shocking as it may be to us, he is included when, in the first place, 
Samuel, before establishing the kingship of Israel, recounts to the people how and through whom God has delivered the people of Israel, preserved them to this point where they're going to get a king. He is amongst those who are noted by Samuel as those who are people of faith who went out on behalf of Israel, on behalf of the Lord, and defeated the enemies of the Lord. And for us, perhaps Samuel doesn't resonate quite the same way as does Hebrews 11. He, this guy, is mentioned in Hebrews 11. In the halls of faith, he's fashioned by God for this purpose to deliver Israel to be a mighty warrior, as he's called in the very first verse, upon whom the Spirit of God will come to rest for the accomplishment of this deliverance. He is a hero of the faith, but he is an unlikely hero. He is an outcast. He's rejected by men. He's banished. He's the son of a prostitute and Gilead. And of course, as time goes along, whether Gilead himself had died at this point or his death was simply, simply impending, the other children, the other sons in particular, say, you know what? We'd prefer not to share our father's inheritance with a bastard. Let's get him out of here. Let's get rid of this one and send him away from us so that we can have more. He is rejected by men. He is a man then without a home, without a family, without a heritage, without a future. He's an unlikely hero. And yet there's something about him. There's something about him that is apparent in this story. There's something about him, some quality or some trait of leadership that causes men to gather around this guy. Albeit, it's a band of worthless fellows, as they're called who with him seemed to be willing, what they do is they go out on raids. It says, they collected around Jephthah and went out with him. The idea here is, is they're a group of bandits. They live for the moment. They get what they can get. They go out on raids together, raid a city, raid a town, raid a caravan, get what they can get, come back to whatever place they are uh, dwelling in the land of Tov and stay there. He's a rogue. He's the scoundrel. He's the brigand. But people see something in him. He's a leader, albeit a gang leader. A leader of a band of thugs. What we're shown next in the passage, though, is that he is a shrewd leader. So he's an unlikely hero. He's a shrewd leader. His mind is quick. His tongue is skilled. He demonstrates something. We'd be hard-pressed to call what he demonstrates wisdom. 
but we could at least say that he demonstrates street smarts. He understands people. He understands what they're asking. He understands the way the world works. Jephthah is a man cut off. No one is going to give Jephthah anything. You're not going to offer Jephthah a job. You're not going to give Jephthah any portion of the inheritance. No one gives Jephthah anything. He has to go out and use his wits to make it in this world. And then the Gileadites come to him. And I want us to see the parallel here for us, even though I didn't read it for us. A parallel is being set up between the way Israel comes to God for help in distress and the way the Gileadites come to Jephthah in their time of distress. And the response that God gives and the response that Jephthah gives to this situation, they're paralleling, they're tracking right together here in terms of what this actually looks like. Israel comes to God when they're being oppressed. Gilead comes to Jephthah when they're being oppressed and he has a reaction just like God's. Oh, really? You want me? You hate me. I am the one you hate. I am the one that you've sent away. Remember? I do. I remember what you did. And he knows. He knows as the one who has been kicked out, you want me to be your captain. In other words, you want to hire me. You want me to be a mercenary. Come in, take care of the Ammonites for you, and I know what's going to happen after that. You're going to kick me out again. You're going to use me to solve the problem that you've got, and when it's done, you're kicking me out the door. You're sending me back home or away from home to the place where he currently dwells. You hate me, and when I'm not needed, you'll send me out. In other words, Jephthah holds the cards right now. He knows what's going on. He sees how this is playing out, and he's now going to play the Gileadites who then offer him not only to be their leader, their military captain, their campaign leader, if you will, but who then up their original offer, which Jephthah hasn't heard, it's at the end of chapter 10, but they say, be head over us. And Jephthah hears that and goes, okay, that's different. That's different than being a mercenary to come in and fight your battle for. You're asking me to be head over you. Now this puts us then in the trajectory that we saw in Gideon and then in Abimelech. Remember the, the request to Gideon was rule over us. The idea with Abimelech was reign over us. Now we're to a behead over us. And Jephthah makes them swear. He's a shrewd negotiator. He's a shrewd leader. And he makes them swear that that's in fact what they will do. So Jephthah here in this passage has gained what he had lost. He gets back what he had lost. He regains a future and an inheritance through his negotiating abilities, through his mind, through his tongue. And then that continues with 
to be demonstrated, the, the skill that he has in negotiating, even though it doesn't work out, uh, and the skill that he has with his tongue in the negotiations with the Ammonites. And so you have this man who was made low, an unlikely hero, who goes from rags to riches, becomes the man exalted, the shrewd leader, the shrewd negotiator, up to the anointing that takes place with the Spirit in verse 29. But of course, this is a tragedy, and the story turns. That which is so powerful in him, his wit, his mind, his tongue, his ability to figure out a situation, get in and out, the strength of his hand, it's all going to turn. It all will be become for him bitterness and foolishness. He becomes a tragic deliverer. Hear the words again. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. We recoil when we read that. You kind of go, oh no. What did you just say? What did you just vow? Man of words, man of wit, man of street smart. What did you just say? That didn't just come out of your mouth, did it? Now, just to point this out, vows and offerings are part of God-ordained Israelite worship. But what did you just say? What did you just vow unto the Lord? You who have come so far. You who were the reject, the reject, the one who was cast out. You who were the low one. You who have now been exalted to this position of head. What did you just vow? The deliverance, the victory over the Ammonites takes place, of course, and it is described for us almost in as few of words as possible. It's in very typical judge's form. It says that the Lord empowered him, that the Lord then gave Jephthah the victory over the Ammonites, and Israel was, in fact, delivered. But it doesn't end with and Israel had peace for 40 years, and Jephthah judged Israel for 20 years. It doesn't end with, and they lived happily ever after. In the midst of the celebration, we are cast immediately into the throes of agony. You know, the passage, a writer points this out, the passage in 1 Corinthians where we talk about where Paul talks about death being swallowed up in victory. Well, here, victory is swallowed up in death. The victory is told, but we're immediately back to that vow and the results of that vow. 
What did Jephthah think would come out of the door to meet him? What did he think? It, it, it only makes it a little bit better if he thought maybe a servant and not my daughter. What did he think would come out of the door? The idea of to meet him seems to be indicative of somebody who would meet him to celebrate the victory that he had just had over the Ammonites. Why did he make that vow? Why does the daughter have to pay for the father's sin? And why, my fellow believers, in the almighty power of a sovereign God, why didn't God arrange it, given the stupidity of the vow? Why didn't God arrange it so that something came out that door before her? You come to my house, you know what comes out the door? The dog comes out the door first. A cat, I don't, I don't know, something. A chicken runs out of the place. Something. God, arrange it so, so it'll be other than this. Why didn't God have her indisposed? Not there. Just out somewhere. Walking through the hills. Why does his only child end up the sacrifice? Why doesn't he, for that matter, the minute he sees her, take his sword, plant it in the ground, and fall on it? Because I'm not doing this. I'm not doing anything else. Why doesn't he work within the law of God to find a substitute? Something else. After all, the word of God can't be clear, and maybe we should say this just to make sure that we're clear. I've read this before, Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care, so that's describing the situation, take care that you be not ensnared to follow after them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Don't do this. There's no ambiguity. There's no lack of scriptural clarity here. It wasn't that, that he was just thinking of a vow and he happened to get this one wrong. It's not unclear. For that matter, why isn't there a ram in the thicket? Genesis? Isaac? The knife is taken, ready to slay before the burnt offering. Uh-uh. I'm staying your hand. I've provided something for this. Don't give up your son. Why isn't there a ram in the thicket? I, it's, it's a bad vow. God has the ability to take care of it. How can she 
be so noble. It's extraordinary to see what is recorded about her. In the midst of judges, this kind of faithfulness, this kind of humility, this kind of simple trust, an unquestioning trust. Why does the innocent have to suffer for the guilty? Tragedy, this tragedy, makes us want to cry out, no, stop, this cannot be. You cannot do this. I don't care what else happens. You cannot do this thing. It is wrong. It is unspeakably awful. Which is why then our writer doesn't even describe the event, but only says, he did according to the vow he had spoken. I'm not even going to take the time to explain it. He did according to the vow. In securing Israel's future by delivering them from the Ammonites, Jephthah has lost his own, and he's lost his daughters. And so she and the companions weep for her virginity. An unfulfilled life, a life without a future, no one will come after. And so, what do we do? Do we rejoice that the Ammonites are defeated? Let's say yes, we rejoice. The Ammonites are defeated. You get, you get however long it takes for him to travel back home. To rejoice in the defeat of the Ammonites. Before then, we mourn a tragic loss. Why? Why? What, what's the point of this? Tragedy as an experience, tragedy as a genre, awakens us. It stirs us. It hits something inside of us, albeit something agonizing inside of us. It moves us to pity. It allows us to say in our grief that grief is grief. That tragedy is tragedy. And it allows us to say in our own tragedy, you're not alone. As we experience this now together, as we feel it together, we're not alone. And there is then in this shared lament and it's a lament we can share now to a certain extent. It is a lament that was shared then by the companions who are with them, who are mourning what has taken place here or what is about to take place. There isn't a shared lament, a catharsis. A catharsis that doesn't lead to ambivalence. It doesn't make you walk away and shrug your shoulders and go, okay. Well, what's the next thing? What's the basketball game that's on tonight? Tragedy makes us consciously aware that we inhabit a moral universe. And in this moral universe, actions 
have meaning. What we do matters. Consequences are attached to the things that we say, to the things that we do, to the things that we leave undone or unsaid. And as such, tragedy calls us to action, to act, to act in faith on behalf of those who are oppressed, in this case, the Israelites oppressed by the Ammonites. To be careful of words and of vows. But to put it very simply, what does a passage like this call you to? Dads, calls you to love your daughters. Parents, love your children. And that matters. And that makes a difference. Tragedy legitimizes the place of lament. It legitimizes the reality of a broken heart in this world. Lament, a broken heart, they are part of being human. But biblical tragedy doesn't stop there. Because with all confusion, and there's lots of confusion here, I raised all those questions, I didn't answer them. I didn't answer them for you. There's a lot in this passage where I'm, I'm and I would encourage you, I'm going to join Joe, but I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and go, I'm not sure of the answer to some of those things. With all of the confusion, biblical tragedy still cries out. The Lord is judge. The Lord reigns supreme. That's the passage we read as the call to worship this morning. The Lord sat as king at the flood. When it seems like everything is breaking loose, the Lord reigns as king. There's a greater deliverance. There's a bigger story. That's what biblical tragedy says to us. I said that Jephthah forfeited his and his daughter's future. And yet, and yet, the daughters of Israel remember the daughter of Jephthah. We don't know her name. They did. They lifted it up. They remembered her. And in the years that followed, the imperfect faith of Jephthah is remembered and recounted and recorded in the annals of the faithful. Almost incomprehensibly, uh, incomprehensibly, unwittingly, unknowingly, in securing Israel's future by delivering them from the Ammonites, Jephthah secures the future of his daughter and his own future. You have to secure the future of Israel. 
Because from Israel comes a child. From Israel comes a child who would be despised and rejected, who would be pushed out, driven out from his homeland, who will take all these messy strands of this story and weave them together into something that looks like tragedy, and then you're going to have to take another look at it. He's rejected, he's despised, he's driven out of his homeland. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And yet he was wise with his words, he would heal with his words, he was innocent. And they bring him back in and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rule over us, son of David, Hosanna to you. And they turn on him. And they turn on that one. The one brought low, now exalted to this place, is then brought low again in the tragedy. But instead of him saying, take somebody else. Take Peter, take John, take Mary, take Martha. This one, this leader, this head, this king, this deliverer, this judge says, take me. Take me. I am the sacrifice. You look at it and you go, a bachelor dying on a cross without any children. Sad story. And yet God will take it. He will take that tragedy and he will then exalt the one who is brought so low. And he will take his name and make it above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that that man who hung on the cross is Lord. And you know how many shall come from him? Countless. Numberless children. Descendants and heirs will be his. And you know what the inheritance will be for that one? The one who was cast out and rejected and brought low? All things. All things. And all things for those who are made in his image and believe in his name. All things given to them. And so biblical tragedy has this divine trajectory. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the morning. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The existence of tragedy, our experience in tragedy, our ability to label and understand that something is in fact tragic, speaks to us that things matter, that the world has value, that there is good to be done in the world, that our actions have 
consequence, that there is goodness to be pursued, tragedy. The awfulness of this passage, and it's going to bring us back to the very beginning of the sermon. Tragedy and the awfulness of the passage awakens us to the romance of the faith. Because if tragedy is possible, love is possible. Love of your children. Love of one another. Love of Christ. In the face of tragedy, those are worth pursuing with all of our hearts because to miss those would be tragic. Lord, break our hearts. We who are inundated with awful news all the time that we see and hear around us, that be, we become numb to, soften us, Spirit of God. Awaken in us love, a zeal to speak well, to communicate love, to do that which is good, to vow that which is right and pure, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, our spiritual service of worship. Help us to offer ourselves and help us to do that, Jesus, even when we don't understand, even when we can't figure out what's going on and what the purposes are in any particular moment or situation. Be glorified in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.